Please remain standing as you're able. As we come to God's word, we'll do so very likely as Jesus and Paul would have done, reciting the Shema, which of course Jesus made the basis for the great commandment. Shema Israel. Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Had. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. We're in 1 Corinthians 9 this morning. In chapter 8, Paul was taking on a thorny issue of what happens when a few wealthy members go and accept invitations to the temples of false gods uh, like Aphrodite or, um, and eat uh, meat at a meal there because meat is something not generally available to the public. And uh, people had protested, the wealthy, they said, look, we know these gods aren't real so we can go to these parties and it has no effect on us. But the new Christians who had spent a life in paganism were troubled by the fact that you would turn around as a Christian and go back to the temple. So Paul's been talking about this and then he picks up the argument in kind of an interesting way in chapter 9, verse 1. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen our Lord Jesus? Are you not the result of uh, my work? Others may not think I am an apostle, but surely you think I am. You are the seal of of my apostleship. Now, I say this in defense to those who sit in judgment upon me. Have we not the right to food and drink? Have we not the right to believe, to bring along a believing wife with us, as do the other apostles, as do the Lord's brothers, and as does Cephas? Are Barnabas and I the only ones who have not the right to not work for a living? Does a soldier serve at his own expense? Does a farmer plant a vineyard and not eat any of the grapes? Does a shepherd raise a flock and not drink any of the milk? Am I speaking to you merely out of human authority? Is it not written in God's law? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while it is threshing the grain. And then Paul goes on to make a few other arguments uh, with a verse from Jesus and then um, scriptures about the priest. And then closes in verse 15. But I've not made use of any of these rights. For I would rather die than be deprived of my boast. And his boast is that he doesn't accept pay for what he's doing. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. It seems a little self-serving for the pastor to get up and talk about a text that's primarily about paying the pastor. And in fact, I know it is troubling. A few weeks ago, Val emailed me and wanted to talk to me about the children's sermon for this Sunday. And she said to me, well, where are you going with this? The only thing I get out of this text is that you're supposed to pay the preacher. Well, you can see what Val decided to do. Let's talk about the organ instead. It does seem a little self-serving. Sometimes it's almost embarrassing. I remember years ago I was watching one of those late night uh, TV preachers. And he was on this text and another text. And he was making the point for half an hour that he had a right to the money of those who were watching him on TV. So they needed to send it in and part with it. 
And I remember after listening to that for 30 minutes straight as a pastor, I was a little embarrassed and I was thinking, you know, he ought to pay me for having to listen to that for 30 minutes. Seems self-serving. And yet Paul spends almost 15 verses in in our uh, biblical translations. Of course, they wouldn't have actually had verses when the Corinthians read it. But 15 verses establishing his right to get paid. And and he uses precedent like other apostles get paid. He uses analogies from their world. The analogy of the soldier, the analogy of the farmer, the analogy of the shepherd. Then he goes to the scripture. You know, just to kind of put a real fancy bow on it and uses a scripture from the Torah, uses a quote from Jesus that the, the worther, workers are worthy of their hire. And then goes on to say, you know, those who work in the temple uh, in the Bible and in, in our Old Testament got paid. And he does all that to make his case. It seems like it might be self-serving. But my suggestion to you this morning is maybe it's not. On a closer look, all the way through the letter of Corinthians, Paul has been unfavorably compared to traveling philosophers who are coming through Corinth. And who, as Cynic philosophers are Stoic philosophers, they lecture with wisdom and brilliance and and they're very attractive and they, they make their point eloquently and they also get paid for it. And typically the way these philosophers got paid was one of three ways. One, they would beg. You know, they would, uh, some of the lesser known philosophers basically would almost set out in a street corner like a musician might and kind of open their guitar case and, and let people drop money in. Others found it much more helpful to get a patron or patroness, you know, a title sponsor who will underwrite their lectures um, as they go around. And still others had another way, which may sound familiar to you today. They would do their first lecture on philosophy for free. And you were invited and welcomed in. But if you wanted any more of what they had to say, then you had to pay tuition. But Paul said, wait, there's another way to do it. I work. I work for a living. Anybody know what Paul did? Yeah, made tents. And we'll talk more about that in a, in a few minutes. So Paul says, I work. It still might seem self-serving, Paul establishing his difference in his defense. Uh, but I do want you to note a couple things. First of all, In these 15 verses on establishing Paul's right to get paid, what he's actually doing besides setting up a case is he is establishing the right for all the future preachers that come through Corinth to get paid. He's looking out for them. And and as one who's followed him 2,000 years later, my wife and I have had to put three through college, I want to say in front of everyone, thank you, Paul. Uh, But the other thing he's doing is also interesting. You've got to look more closely at the context. As I mentioned to you, uh, in chapter 8, he's taken on a very thorny issue of, can I go as a Christian to a temple of a pagan god or goddess, Aphrodite or Apollo, um, Asclepian? And a few of these 17 temples in Corinth have very large dining rooms. And there, there would be fancy banquets to which the wealthy were invited, and they would eat meat, which usually was only available to the wealthy. And so the argument was that the new Christians who had spent their life worshiping pagan gods were now looking at some of the older, more wealthy and established Christians going to these temples. And they're like, what's up with this? And it was hurting their faith. And so Paul addresses this issue in chapter eight in really an ingenious way. One of the things he says is, you know what, you're right. He says to these, these, we called them last week, know-it-alls, to these know-it-alls, he said, you know, you're right. You, those gods aren't real. There is only one God and, and, uh, and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, one God the Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You're right. 
You're right. The, the other's not true. You're right. And you've got the right. You've got the right to eat this food. But in an ingenious spin, he'll do something with that. But first of all, I have to feel and let you know, as American, I feel pretty good about that part. I mean, you know, we Americans are into rights, right? I mean, depending on which party or your persuasion, you, you know, you're worried about the right to bear arms or uh, the right to secure border or the right to health care, the right to a living wage. Everyone's uh, the right to do with your own body what you wish. I mean, everyone's got these rights that they push. And you need to know Paul's not taking away anybody's rights. But ingeniously, what he's saying is you've got this right just like I've got this right. I would like to invite you to waive that right on behalf of another person. And so to make this argument about why you shouldn't go to this pagan temple and eat this food, even though it's right for you to do so, he uses an ex- himself as an example. He's already said, look, if it would cause my brother to sin, I won't eat meat. But just to add on to it, he said, here's another example, basically. I got the right to get paid. And he argues it every way possible to say, I ought to be paid. But I'm waiving that right. And I'm waiving it for the good of the gospel. And we'll talk about in a moment what that might mean. But basically, sometimes you waive your rights for the good of another person. And he's using himself as an example. Look at me. I could claim these things, but it would hurt the witness of the gospel, so I won't. But, and, uh, and, but he could have also used Jesus as an example, could he not? We read about it this morning in the scripture. We sang about it. Yesu, Yesu. Jesus has the right to have every one of us come and kiss his feet and wash his feet, right? He's got that right. He's Lord. We are not. And yet he waves that right at the Last Supper and washes the feet of his disciples. Jesus hangs on the cross. Jesus has the right to demand from us payment for our failures, for what we have participated in and the destruction of this good world and life that God has created as, as sinners. But instead he waves that right and goes to the cross on our behalf. This is what I think Paul is trying to establish is we all have rights. But sometimes the most important thing we can do is waive our right for the good of the gospel or for love of another person. Let me try to say it this way. There are some cases in which our rights can be wrong. There are some cases in which exercising our rights can be wrong if it hurts the gospel or hurts another person. So, for example, uh, Pastor Dinah, who's preaching in New Heights this morning, we were talking about it earlier this week. She's teaching one of her daughters to drive. So she said, we cover the rule that when you come to a four-way stop, you know, the first person there is the first person to go. And so you get to a four-way stop and another car is coming and uh, you've, you've gotten there before them. You have the right of way. However, she said to her daughter, if that person runs that stop sign, I would prefer you not go forward. I would prefer you not exercise your right to go at the stop sign because that could be damaging to you and to another person. Sometimes our rights can be wrong. Uh, I had uh, three sons, have three sons. They all played tennis and I was wise enough to hire people to teach them. Um, but I wasn't wise enough to leave it there. So I would go to their lessons with them, and I would pay probably closer attention to their professionals than they would. And so the rest of the week when I was with them, I was correcting them according to what the professional had told them, and even to some points probably taunting them according to what the professional had told me. 
I had a right to do that. I was paying for the lessons. I was paying better attention to the lessons than they were. But in the way I was passing on the lessons to them and correcting them, I could see in their spirit was not helpful. I might have been right, but the way I executed it sometimes was really made it a wrong. Or pardon me after two Pokemon Go stories last week. One more from the first few weeks of Pokemon Go. You remember this was like from the first week uh, here. It's a couple of teenagers chasing their Pokemon in a car are stopped uh, across the street at night from somebody's house uh, figuring out their next move. They're in the car. They're not out of the car. Figuring out a person across the street feels like their homestead is being threatened by these young men and comes out and fires at their automobile. Now, fortunately, no one was hurt. He has a right to defend his homestead. But really, in the exercising of that right, he could have been quite, quite wrong. Sometimes the pushing of our rights makes it wrong. And that's, that's what Paul's trying to establish here. If I, if I got paid, I would look like the philosophers getting paid. And they would just think the gospel is just another piece of information available for a price. The gospel is just another secret available to you for three payments of 1995. Paul didn't want that. He said, I, I'm going to waive that right so they know that it's free. And he doesn't exactly say this, but I think it is there. As we mentioned, Paul's a tent maker. He's in Corinth for, a few, for 18 months, uh, probably part of 51, 52, part of 53 um, A.D. So he's there, and uh, Corinth is the most significant city in Greece, more important at that time than Athens. It's the host of like uh, a... Uh, Another Olympics, kind of like second level to the Olympics, called the Isthmian Games. And so people come all over the world to these games. And when the tourists come, and lots of tourists come to, tourists come to Corinth anyway because of the Temple to Aphrodite, uh, sometimes there aren't enough shops to sell them all the goods they need. There's not enough space in the existing shops. There's not enough space to, for them to sleep at night. There's not enough motel room. So what's an answer? Tents, of course. So here's Paul, who can ply his trade and meet people from all over the world. And do you think Paul makes a tent for anybody or sells a tent to anybody and doesn't tell them about Jesus? Doubtful. So one of the things he's saying is, if I, if I didn't have to work for a living, if I didn't do this job, I would be cut off from the very people who need to hear about Jesus. So his argument is, I waive my rights because it's better for the gospel. And it's better for other people. All this to lead me to the question, what right are we currently exercising that we might be better passing on or waving in situations for the betterment of the gospel or for other people? Well, I don't know what it is for you. That's a matter of prayer and conversation. But I'll tell you, one of the big ones for me is I realized in working on the sermon that I need to wave my right to be right. I like to be right. I like to be right at home. I don't know if you've ever had this uh, uh, situation. You're arguing with your spouse about something, and then suddenly she just says, okay, and gives up. And I'm like, no, don't give up. I'm winning this thing. Let me have my victory. Let me nail this down. Sometimes the need to be right could actually be wrong. And I, I, I've done that with my three grown children when they were younger more, than, more times than I want to remember. 
sometimes pushing that right. And then as a pastor, even more so. You know, when, when you're in a class and someone says something that you think is maybe theologically not completely uh, correct or cites the wrong biblical verse or, or says a verse that's not in the Bible, you know, it's like it's everything in me wants to pounce and make the correction. Diane and I were texting back and forth about the sermons this morning. And she said, I was telling her what I was going to do. She said, I find it's ironic that a preacher would uh, say that uh, maybe his problem is he needs to give up being right. And I responded back to her, it's not just ironic, it's painful. I want to be right. But for me, sometimes being right has really, I've walked out of a room or out of a discussion or out of the kitchen and realized that being right was really being wrong. Great Dallas Willard, who died um, uh, earlier this year, there's a, um, uh, last year, there's a story about him. He was a wonderful and brilliant philosophy professor and Christian, University of Southern California. He was so brilliant that one of his students writing about him said, I never wanted to engage him in an argument because I was afraid he would prove that I did not, in fact, exist. He was that smart. And so one day, at the end, toward the end of class, one of his students uh, made a comment about something he'd said. And there were two problems, said another student who's writing this, about that comment. Number one, it was extremely rude and disrespectful to Dr. Willard. Secondly, it was totally ludicrous and completely wrong. And Dallas Willard could probably have destroyed it in three sentences or less. But instead, Willard just folded up his notes and said, I think that'll be it for today. Walked out. So the student who's writing about him, you know, walks with him down the hall and, and says, hey, you know, why didn't you say something? He was rude, and you know he was completely wrong. And he said to his student, he said, right now, he said, I'm practicing giving up the right to have the last word. And he went on to tell his student that sometimes the hardest thing in the world is to be right and not hurt anybody with it. Did you ever in school want to sit next to the know-it-all? The person who answered everything? It's so hard to be right and yet be loving at the same time. And I'm reading this going, that's it for me to give up the right to be right. As I've told you before, and you're probably tired of the story, but I think it's helpful because it's, it's a biblical situation. In Jesus' day, there were two main Christian, uh, excuse me, Jewish philosophies. The philosophy or the school of Shammai, and they were very strict and very narrow, and they wanted to get it right down to the letter, down to the comma. They wanted it exactly right, and they could not, they just couldn't think God could tolerate any sort of deviance from an exact and precise definition and application of God's law. And there was another school called Hillel, from which Gamaliel and Paul came, who believed that when you interpreted God's word, you wanted to be as generous as possible so more people could understand it and live by it. And so one day they argued about everything. I mean, everything. So one day, here's the argument. Is it right to tell a bride that she is lovely on her wedding day when in fact she is not? So the school of Shammai said, well, it's not right. That would be lying. That would be telling a non-truth. No, you can't say to her she is lovely. And the school of Hillel said, well, 
how do you know what she looks like to her groom on her wedding day? And there was a more generous interpretation. The same two schools fought over peace and truth. And Hillel, a side which Jesus took, not every time, but most of the time, came up with this, that when peace and truth come into conflict, most of the time, peace should win. Not all the time, but most of the time. And it made me think that when I think I'm right about something biblically or in the house or whatever else, have I first exhausted every avenue toward a truthful peace? before I just start going after the truth on, and inflicting the truth? Have I worried as much about the relationship being right as the answer to the question being right? So in Kierkegaard, uh, 150 or more years ago, wrote a parable. And it was about some thieves who broke into a jewelry store at night, but they didn't steal anything. All they did was they switched the price tags. And on the most expensive jewelry, they sold it for pennies. And on the least expensive little baubles, they sold them for thousands. And it took days for people to figure out the difference. But I've wondered in my life, at some point, when it came to relationship and being right, they're both important. But somewhere in my life, did I get the price tag switched? 